what's up everybody shout out to everybody uh, that made it here this morning thank you for spending part of your sunday here welcome to the comet ml happy hour powered by the artist data science i couldn't be more excited to uh, to do this this is uh, such an honor to be here with my co-host Iodele. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna get to know Iodele real quick, and then we'll jump into your questions. So, Iodele, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So, uh, first, talk to us about where you grew up. What was it like there? Yeah. So, I actually was a military brat. Um, I grew up East Coast, Virginia Beach area. I was where I spent the vast majority of like my early childhood, but we lived in New Jersey, Arkansas. My family kind of landed in Texas. Um, and from there, I've kind of been a nomad. So I went to a ton of different places for school. I went to Pittsburgh um, for undergrad and then moved to Denver for my master's degree in data science. And I'm back in Denver now after taking a couple detours for work, but definitely uh, I'm one of those people who has to think about it. If you ask me what my hometown is. Yeah, that's, that's awesome that you were able to be exposed to so many different places in, in the States as, as you're growing up. And one thing that's interesting is I remember talking to you before um, your path into data science is kind of, uh, I want to say almost reluctant. Like you weren't always a data science type of person, but you grew a affinity towards it. Talk to us about that. Yeah, it's really funny when I so when I was going graduated high school was going off to college, I was undecided. I was that typical. I have no clue what I want to do with my life. Um, I thought I wanted to go into medicine, so I was pre med for a while. I thought, okay, maybe now that I'm freaked out by like patients and blood and all of that, I maybe want to be into journalism. Went to school for journalism for a while. Um, kind of bounced around, um, ended up with like a associate's degree in film. Um, and when I was starting to look for work, I was like, oh, my friends with like computer science degrees are making a lot more money than what I'm making. Um, and I'd always been into tacking computers. So my parents were early adopters. They had like the big satellite TV in the early nineties. Um, so I was like, I kind of like this whole tech stuff. Um, but I was a CS major for two years and I really didn't enjoy the program. So, um, I found it difficult cause we were starting off learning like C plus plus and doing coding tests on paper. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. Um, so I actually ended up my with my bachelor's degree in communications, but it kind of worked out in that I ended up working at marketing agencies. I was doing like social media content creation and managing things like their campaigns. Um, but that actually led to a really cool job at an app company where they wanted me to do that work, but more on their in-app data. So looking at their couple hundred thousand users and A-B testing like push notifications um, and in-app messages. And so I did that for about six months until that little startup ran out of runway. Um, and that's when data was starting to get really hot. So I was starting to see the articles. I'm like, you know, if it requires a lot of analytics work and A-B testing, this is some stuff I've played with. I think I could do this. Um, and so I actually went back to school after that for my master's in data science. And then, yeah, been working in the field since. And you've actually got a course that you recently launched yeah. about supervised machine learning, if I recall correctly, right? Do you want to tell us yeah. a little bit about that course that you've put out? Yeah, I'm really excited. It's a fairly 
mid-level course. So if you are like someone who's played around with Python or has tried to um, understand using NumPy and Pandas, um, it kind of just goes into some of the details of the technical concepts, the um, what actually is a neural network and what is a decision tree. Um, so I'm really excited about that um, because it is up on LinkedIn now. And uh, it was really, <laughs> it was really difficult, I think, um, to try and do the course, especially like right as the pandemic hit. Um, but I think that it's it's helpful for folks who definitely need to see that code along and to write the code along with uh, learning the kind of theory at the same time. I love that approach to teaching. I think everybody here should definitely check out that class. You have it on LinkedIn Learning, if I'm yeah. not mistaken, right? So yeah. definitely, if you guys have LinkedIn Learning, I think that comes free with your premium subscription. Look for your daily's course on there and check that out. So here's a question that I know everybody here has. Like, what what does what does a data evangelist do? Like, what does that even mean? Talk to us about that. Yeah. Well, I think in it's similar to data science in general, and that it's kind of undefined still at a lot of places. But um, for me and at Comet, it really just means being able to create technical content and to be able to relate to the day-to-day job of a data scientist, but working more in um, trying to create things that are useful. So um, reports, uh, blog posts that are actually helpful or things like tutorials, as well as hosting stuff like this. So it's um, a little bit technical and a little bit um, marketing as well. But it's nice because I I definitely felt like for a long time, a lot of my marketing um, knowledge and things that I gained along along the way weren't really meaningful at other roles. So I get to uh, use that a little bit more now. That's awesome because it's kind of a way to combine skills, right? So you're combining technical knowledge with the communication aspect of it. So you're really combining skills and this little uh, kind of intersection of these skills is is data evangelism. So talk to us about Comet ML now. I know everybody here is wondering what is Comet ML? First of all, before we talk about what is Comet ML, why is Comet ML even hosting a office hour? Yeah, I think the thing is, is right now it's also really hard to feel like we have community. I know um, pre-pandemic, one of the things that I've loved about data science is I've always felt really accepted by the community. So going to different conferences and being able to ask the, what I thought were really stupid questions, I always felt fairly comfortable because so many people in data science come from drastically different backgrounds. So um, really, we're just trying to have a kind of virtual format that's like that without, um, you know, being worried that you are asking a novice question or that, um, you know, it's going to seem too basic. So, yeah, I'm hoping that this forum allows for that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And I was super excited when Gideon reached out to me talking about he wanted to to contribute give back to the community and just help help me help other people in a more massive scale and i thought that was really awesome and we're really well aligned with those uh those points of just trying to give back to the community and help out so now talk to us about what is common ml and where does their product fit in the machine learning life cycle yeah so I will tell you a little bit about how I got introduced to Comet. So like full transparency, I've been at Comet about a month now. Um, But my first thoughts when, so Gideon reached out to me when I was looking for work um, and he mentioned the product. And my first thought was like, 
this is something that I should have been using. And I think that's why I'm so excited about our product because I've been in situations many times as a data scientist where um, let's say I'm experimenting in a Jupyter notebook and my kernel restarts or I accidentally overwrite a single cell your work is just kind of gone like it is it's a small loss that i think especially when you are moving maybe from academia into um, industry you're like oh it's not a big deal but when you are at these really large companies or you are doing um really intense experimentation aka like building dozens to hundreds of models um it could be it's a really, really costly problem. And on top of that, like it's what Comet essentially does is solves what GitHub kind of did for coding in general. Um, so I think we've all probably run into the limitations of not being able to host our data or our hyperparameters or um, our model metrics aren't just saved and logged to GitHub because our code is. Um, so that's essentially what Comet's product does. You can pip install Comet. You can use it with R or Python, or um, if you are working in deep learning, it works with like literally every deep learning framework. Um, and what you do is basically say, here's an experiment and I, uh, you are making a ML model and you want to save all of the data from that, you'd say, all right, put like a little line of code. Um, and that's actually going to save everything in that file from your code to the environment you're running in. So um, what version of TensorFlow you're using? I don't know if this has been a problem um, that you guys have noticed, but for me, especially when I'm trying to like collaborate with people on my team, I have to manually send like the dependencies they have to go and independently, independently download. Or I've sat down like um, in one of my larger data science teams, there was about 40 of us. Um, most analysts and data scientists got default uh, Windows computers and all of our managers had MacBooks. So every time I'd sit down next to my manager, she's like, why isn't your code working on my computer? For some reason, I'm running into a, a, a single bug here and we spend hours trying to debug that. Comet's product basically solves that by making it really easy, essentially just sending a link to someone as long as they have like Python <laughs> installed, they don't have to go and get every single dependency that you used. But what's really handy for people trying to analyze how well their you know, models run against each other is you can plot things like your accuracy over 15 to 20 to 30 experiments and really see how they compete instead of I've done manual like Word docs and writing down my model metrics or um, a spreadsheet. So, but that's really, really tedious and it's like incredibly prone to human error. Um, and I think if we're being honest, like it's it's hard to do that on a on a large scale. It's hard to do that when you have large teams. So um, one, yeah, that was my like first thought coming to Comet was like, I was on a team of a lot of people and we used absolutely nothing to manage this. <laughs> um, everyone was kind of left to their own devices. Sometimes it would be, Here's a screenshot of my environment in the email with a screenshot of my metrics that perform the best. So um, we're trying to make that whole process really, really simple and um, actually uh, less prone to that human-like clerical error. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the product. I've got to play around with it a little bit. Uh, it's freely available if anybody wants to just comment.ml. 
I particularly like the experimentation aspect of it um, that lets you drill down into how individual hyperparameters are affecting how your model fits. I think that is absolutely wonderful. Who knows, maybe at some point, one of these sessions, we can do like a code along where we just kind of show how Comet ML works with like a simple, simple random forest type of problem or something like that. So keep an eye out for that, guys, in the future. Um, but thank you so much, Iodeli, for, for sharing your story, talking to us about Comet ML. Um, they're being so, so wonderfully generous as to, to help host these office hours. And, um, you know, I'm glad that we're able to, to talk about them and the product that they offer. Now, without further ado, let's get to your questions. First question up I got is from Naresh. Then after Naresh, we will go to uh, Giovanna. Then after Giovanna, we will go to uh, Mark. So Naresh, you are up. Yeah. Hello, everyone. I uh, hope you all are doing good. Eventually, my goal is to make into machine learning and AI. So my question is, for newbies, what are the do's and don'ts who wants to get into machine learning and AI? I think that the the do's is first clearly define any problem that it is that you are about to solve and make sure that ML and AI solutions are applicable for the problem it is that you're going to solve. I think that is a big do. Uh, and the big don't is just don't randomly start throwing algorithms at problems and expecting some magic to happen so that's at a very very base level there i'd love to hear from uh i think iodeli probably has some great insights on this and i'm pretty sure mark does as well so let's hear from iodeli and then mark yeah i would say first big do is to still have an understanding of core concepts from like a top-down level so yes it's good to have the linear algebra and calculus background, but really understanding why and what you're doing, especially when it comes to building things like deep learning models. Um, don't, I would say, don't focus on the algorithm at hand um, and focus on how well you're able to solve it. Um, I will say from a lot of my insights from industry is that what will probably end up in production if you are at a maybe startup to medium-sized company is more likely going to be like a regression model than it's going to be like a CNN. Um, so being really comfortable with making linear models and uh, tuning linear models to work well over wanting to work with the most state-of-the-art all the time. And Mark, what do you think? What are some do's and some don'ts for people who are trying to essentially break into uh, data science? Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> I think the main thing for me is like I'm, I'm trying to become an ML engineer eventually. So I'm like, I feel like I had the same question. It's like one year <laughs> further along with it. And I've actually intentionally chose data science roles that aren't really ML heavy. Um, I work at startups, so that was a really great point. We're not doing neural networks. That would be a horrible thing for a startup. Um, and I think the thing, key thing that I was really interested in is where does data drive business impact? And also, how can you determine uh, when a model is like a really great choice to move forward with or when you just do summary statistics? Um, and so kind of a do is like, especially if we're trying to work on as data science solve business problems, learn how to speak to business stakeholders. They will give you all the key assumptions that will make creating a model a lot easier. Um, and then also become very like product focused. So learn how to talk to customers, so listen to customer needs. Um, those will give you really great clues on what models to potentially choose or not choose um, and approaches for that. 
Um, and it will make the process a lot easier because I think so, something I've learned um, being a startup and trying to implement maybe uh, <laughs> just a model not maybe machine learning, even regression or some type of heuristic is that um, talking to business stakeholders will save me a lot of time up front. Um, and so when I do get to do more of the advanced things, I have a very good sense of like what I need to solve. I can just focus on teaching myself through the books I've kind of uh, picked up along the way. I 100% agree with that. And it's interesting because when I was first breaking into quantitative careers, my first kind of job in, I want to say data science, but let's just say it was just in the data realm was as an actuarial analyst. And I thought my job would just be sitting in the corner all day building sweet models that predict things. Um, but that's not really how it works, right? At the end of the day, people need to understand the work that you do. So I think the biggest do I would say is do realize that your role as a data scientist, as a data practitioner is to solve business problems uh, first and foremost, right? So solve business problems typically to do two things, either reduce costs or make more money, right? Uh, your job isn't just to like sit on a Jupyter notebook all day and just try random things, hoping something works. So I guess a big do I would say is do focus on creating value for your organization. Um, so let's hear from from Jaya, my, my friend Jaya here. And then after Jaya, let's hear from Giovanna on this topic. And then we'll jump right into your question after you uh, uh, share your thoughts with us, Giovanna. So uh, my experience is I've taken a lot of courses, I've attended a lot of webinars. I, I would boil down to three things you need to be really strong to be a great data scientist. You know, I've done deep learning projects, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I can tell you three things that you really need to strengthen in order to be a successful data science. I feel you need to know uh, programming and number two, math and statistics and SQL. These are the three things as far as tools are concerned, you need to know those three. And they are no in particular order, but I, I, I think I speak from experience. I took a lot of stuff. And at the end of the day, these three things were the most powerful. And when you look at a job description, you know, look at the first top three or first uh, top four bullet points. And you always, always find that Python or R or SQL or, you know, Math, statistics, I mean, I say math, I'm talking about prob probability statistics, linear algebra, calculus. Those are the three things. And in the, even in those three math, there is no particular order. Just pick one and focus on that and be strong on that and go to the next one. So these three things are the top for me, in when, I think, when you're doing data science. As far as algorithms and all that and machine learning is concerned, that will be like a fourth thing. So uh, I would say, yeah, like what Harpeet and uh, I, I'd say, yeah, knowing the problem, what is the business problem, and I'll go think of the end in mind first and then go backwards and solve, solve okay, do I need a certain type of model or do I need to, you know, some, something like that. Just think of the end and go backwards. So I think those are the four four things that I want to share. Yeah, from my my experience. Yeah. Thank you very much, Jaya. So Giovanna, let's hear your thoughts on this, and then we can jump right into your question afterwards. Thank you, Harpreet. But um, one suggestion is about to start thinking on the field that you want to dive into, because uh, when we start. We start to doing a lot of. Uh, we try to do a lot of projects. Uh, maybe we have a a very nice portfolio full of projects. But if someone goes in in our in our portfolio, they don't understand 
what is the field that we are uh, stronger. So if you want to start uh, based on something that uh, you can start building your your profile as a data science, it, uh, one suggestion is uh, try to understand what is the field that you would like to work in and start doing projects about that. And another thing is about the uh, soft skills. Uh, as Harpit said at, at the beginning, it's the communication skills are, are fundamental for the, not only for data science, for everything, but doing the uh, good questions, it will, is going to help you to, to have great results after building your models. So, that's our my advice. Yeah, thank you very much. I 100% agree on this, uh, being able to ask good questions. That is definitely a very underrated skill, I think, is just being able to ask questions in such a way that you get more information out of your stakeholder because with more information, you can help solve their problem that much better. Thank you, Giovanna. So, Giovanna, let's um let's go ahead and jump right into your question. Then after you, we'll talk to Mark Deepesh and then John Dietz. Thank you so much. Um, I'm start uh, doing a project. I would like to to build my own data set of images from scratch, and um, I would like to to know if someone can guide me about how to do my own. Uh, I have all the images, but I get some problems to, uh, there is a lot of information on it, uh, on internet about, about this. And I would like to have uh, the data set labeled. So I don't know if you have any, uh, any tutorials, ideas or how to, how to start a data set of images from scratch. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question there. Um, so, so to understand the question completely, so you've got a bunch of images and you essentially just need to get those images labeled somehow. So do you have any subset of those images already labeled? Okay. Uh, I, when I have uh, got, got these uh, images, these images are for a uh, classification model about uh, if a woman is using pants, skirts, or is not an image that is uh, a classification in, in, inside the classification. So I have the images, but I need to put them in a data set and I need to label them to, to build the model. So any suggestion? Yeah, so uh, I'm gonna take the cop-out answer here and say you should look into AWS Mechanical Turk and get people to manually label them for you. I think it's pretty cheap uh, to do that. Um, so sorry if I stole that answer from anyone, but let's hear from Iodeli. How would you handle this? I was going to either mention the same thing. There's um, Mechanical Turk and a couple other similar websites where um, they just use user-generated kind of uh, labels. So those are things you can, services you can pay for that you can then go and verify um, what those annotations or what those actual labels are. Um, other than that, the only real way to do is, to do it is to do it manually. I've done um, even for small uh, computer vision problems where I've created my own data sets. Um, sometimes I've had them specifically in different folders. So pants, skirts, tops, and all of these similar images in that, but um, it is unfortunately time consuming otherwise. Yeah. So if, if anybody else has some uh, 
insight onto this question. I'd love to hear it. Um, otherwise, I'll, I'll, I'll link you to a resource here. Um, maybe if you have some subset of these images already labeled, you can look into using some type of semi-supervised uh, methodology. So I've got a link here in the chat that I'm putting. Now, this link is a link to uh, paperswithcode.com slash task slash semi-supervised image classification. Uh, so just type that into Google. If you're listening at home, you'll be able to uh, check that out as well. Um, so those are really like the only two things I can think of, uh, mostly because I just haven't done anything like this before. But um, if, if you have resources to use Mechanical Turk to get people to manually image the labels, uh, sorry, manually label the images, then do that. Or if you have some subset already uh, classified, then maybe some semi-supervised type of methodology. Uh, anybody else have any experience with this problem statement? Um, it's not necessarily the the classification. Like I'm not a computer vision person at all. I've watched a bunch of YouTube videos that are really interesting. Um, something I thought that was really cool that is like if you're trying to expand your data set is um, in addition to labeling, they'll like flip the images upside down or change the colors for things. So that way you can ex expand your knowns um, a lot more in a different way. Yeah, I think adding to Mark, uh, I think he's talking about data augmentation, uh, recoloring, flipping, you know, horizontal, vertical, that you get, you get extra images uh, from the current image you have. Yeah, I think that's, that's called data augmentation, I believe. So hopefully those are some good keywords for you, Giovanna, to, to kind of help you on your way. Um, if, if not, then definitely swing by Friday's office hour where there's far more smarter people than I am uh, who might be able to help you there. So Mark, let's go ahead and jump into your question. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one of the things I'm really interested in lately is, you know, my goals go to ML engineering eventually, but this term ML ops has been popping up over and over again. It's still very, very new ish. Um, and it seems like there's a lot of overlap, but the ML ops kind of area looks really interesting. So I'm curious, like what's the difference between ML ops and ML engineers? And where do you kind of see that role evolving um, with your crystal ball, I guess, because <laughs> no one can tell the future. <laughs> I think this would be a great question to hear from uh, Ayodele. So Ayodele, do you want to take this one on? Yeah, so I think the ML ops side, the way I see it is it's very much, um, a kind of hodgepodge of job titles that essentially get the operational side of ML kind of done. So um, partially, at least in my experience, partially some data engineers um, working with ML engineers, working with software developers, and in most cases using like a variety of tools to get things done. So where we are in kind of the ML off space, um, we're on like the experiment management side, but there are a lot of other really big companies like you look at um, that are managing like your data lake or your um, cloud database systems. So all of those tools kind of work in collaboration together with however you are also pushing models to production. So whether that's like AWS and SageMaker, whether that's um, containerized with Docker or using Kubernetes. So all of these things are kind of in that whole um, kind of bucket of ML ops. But I think ML engineers are typically more so working with 
software engineers, um, data scientists to kind of finalize models and then um, really working to put them into production. So still working with a lot of the MLOps tools, I think it is definitely in the realm of uh, responsibilities, especially as we start seeing companies get more sophisticated in how we are pushing to production and how we are um, working on model monitoring. So I see MLOps is kind of like your cloud data, how you experiment and manage your experiments for the models you create, as well as um, all of the tools required to actually get models into your product, and then like model monitoring and like feedback. So huge space, but I definitely think, um, yeah, uh, there there's a lot of work um, for, for ML engineers in that. Yeah, if I can piggyback on what I would like you're saying, when I think of MLOps, like the first word that pops into my mind is reproducibility, right? So MLOps is really just the operationalization of machine learning systems. So that is everything from versioning your data pipelines to versioning your data sets that you're using for training to versioning hyperparameters for whatever model it is that you're using at that time. Plus the back end of it. Okay, what do we do once the model is deployed? How do we track everything in terms of model health and maintenance and things like that? So if we were to kind of reason by analogy, and this is probably going to be shaky reason by analogy, but I'd like to think as, you know, what what a software engineer to DevOps person is like, right? So that's how I would think about like machine learning engineer to let's say an MLOps engineer. I don't know if there's any MLOps engineers job titles yet. Um, as far as I know, MLOps is kind of just like a philosophy um, to operationalize you know, machine learning systems um, with a emphasis on ensuring reproducibility. Does that answer your question, hopefully? 1000%, thank you. Thank you both. Definitely, so you wanna go ahead and jump into, um, wait, you just asked a question. So the next question is gonna be uh, Deepesh. Hi, everyone. I'm Audible. Yeah, we could hear you. Yeah, okay. Uh, hi, everyone. This is Dipesh. I am from... <clears throat> uh, so I'm actually currently working in a pharmaceutical consulting firm. So, you know, since... Uh, so thanks, Sarpreet, for this initiative. This is my first uh, <clears throat> call attending with a fellow data science aspirants. So I actually wanted to understand that, you know, uh, when we try to move a business problem to a solution that needs AI or ML or machine learning, so do we have any, you know, any sort of framework or some set of criteria that, you know, maybe f this checkbox A, B, C. So does this problem even need an a artificial intelligence or machine learning algorithm to solve, to solve it? Because right now, my, you know, the current focus area for us has been how we can provide an accurate pharmaceutical forecast that needs a decent amount of business context. But if we propose to a senior executive that, okay, this is a problem that needs AI ML to solve, then how do we assess that? And, you know, if uh, anyone has any experience convincing some senior leaders that, you know, this is a problem that needs AI and ML. So how do they go about, you know, evaluating the possibility? If you're know, just talking with respect to the framework aspect of it, you might want to look into CRISP DM. That's the cross-industry standard for data mining, uh, cross-industry standard practice for data mining or something like that. Um, so that's a good kind of framework to follow. Um, but to, to get to the real heart of, of your question is, how do we know when we need to use machine learning 
to solve a problem? Is that what you're actually asking? Yes. Okay. So I'd, I'd say, are you trying to predict something? Because if you're trying to make a prediction into the future about something, then maybe that is a place where you use machine learning, right? Because um, it, it, if traditional statistical inference isn't going to get you to where you need to be, then you need to start thinking about doing predictions and stuff like that. Um, so I'd love to hear from Iodeli and Mark on this topic as well. Yeah, I think you can try to decipher this in a series of questions. So starting off with like what Harvey mentioned, um, but even going into what kind of data do you have available um, and what kind of data would you need? So um, I've noticed that's typically not always the same data set. Um, and if it's not, can you actually get access to the data that you need? Um, and I would really double down and say, especially within um, the pharmaceutical realm or within healthcare at large, um, do you have access to data about protected classes like race and gender? Um, knowing that upfront will make it easier for you if you do choose like an ML solution to then test for fairness or to test for um, disparate outcomes. Um, but kind of back on the, the track of how do you decipher if you should use ML at all. Um, not only, you know, what kind of data do you have, but what would be the ideal like deployment situation? Is this something that um, is replacing uh, human kind of decision-making as far as are we making certain kind of recommendations that we wanna save time with using ML or AI um, to avoid having to spend a lot of human time uh, on this task. So um, asking questions about the kind of data available, um, ideal kind of deployments, as well as um, understanding what the worst case scenarios are. So um, doing those kinds of, having those com conversations about worst case scenario and thinking about what those kind of simulations would look like um, I think that's going to help you and your team really decipher, is this something that is so beneficial, it's worth, it's worth the potential cost. Thank you very much, Ideli. Mark, what do you think? First question, I kind of heard like three parts. It was the, how you decide AI is the right choice. Once you've already determined that, like how do you convince business stakeholders to think it's the right choice as well? And then finally, there's this healthcare piece. Um, my background is in healthcare is why I got into data science. So like two kind of valuable resources to like build MVPs would be um, the entrepreneur data set from, uh, from CMS, um, which is essentially this giant data set of claims data and pharmaceutical data. Um, that's fake synthetic data that the US government put out. Um, you can build really great MVPs off of that. Um, the second thing is going to the FDA They've been having a lot of talks about like, what does an AI solution healthcare look like um, and how to bring that to market. Um, so look at the FDA, I'm blanking, I can put in the chat and go find the actual uh, press release they've had recently regarding that. Um, I'm gonna skip over the, the ML components. I think a lot of people already discussed that, but assuming like you found like the, the amazing kind of thing that'll drive innovation at your, at your company, now you need to convince the business stakeholders is that um, the key thing is you need to figure out how to reduce risk um, for them making that decision. Um, Josh put out a really great statement in the comments where really easy, simple solutions get you 80% there. 
a lot of the effort is in going from 80 to like 85 and it gets harder with every single iteration. And so like, how can you prove to a business stakeholder that's worth that value to go up incrementally? So I work at a startup. Um, it's main, my main focus is getting features out. Um, so I'm not going to build the most advanced ML model or even the most accurate or may take a lot of shortcuts, but it's very intentional is because I need to get a feature out there, determine if that's what the market really wants. If it's, if it's a yes, then we invest more time to actually make this like a correct model. If it's a no, then we saved hours and hours and hours of time. Um, so some frameworks I really like for innovation is, um, design thinking, um, really building an MVP. Um, it can be as simple. I've built MVPs that are PowerPoints or Excel sheets before I build a, a, a model. Um, another thing is um, uh, at Stanford, there's this class called Lean Launchpad. They have a website that really takes you like how to innovate a startup idea. Um, and a key thing is just user interviews. You have a business hypothesis. You need to do a whole bunch of user interviews um, to say like, hey, is this your real business problem? And then show them your MVP, like, hey, what have you did with this? Get that information, kind of that user stories. Um, so when you go to the business stakeholders, you know, like, hey, here's our AI solution. It's validated. We went to talk to users. It's, um, you know, this seems like they're solving a really big problem. Um, the market size from talking to our users, we think this make this much money, right? Uh, and then we built this, this first iteration and it's being kept up and it's working well. I think it's worthwhile to take the next step. Then you're speaking the business stakeholders' language. Um, it's not about models. It's about reducing risk for them. Deepesh, did that answer your question at all? Is there any follow-up questions to that? Uh, no, because I think that pretty much answered my question. If, if you don't mind sharing kind of like what uh, what's the scenario, like, like what's the actual problem that you're trying to work on, if you don't mind sharing? Uh, yeah, so actually the context is that uh, I think a couple, of, uh, a couple of months back, I had developed a statistical forecasting tool for my for, no, for my consulting firm that needed to be used across teams. So we usually have you know monthly pharmaceutical data that we get from IQVIA and various other sources. So uh, once we generate the demand forecast every month, so we already do have a statistical model that's being used across. You know, if I talk about my client firm, so it has it is being used across markets now tool that I developed was to be used only across one single center. The question was that, do we need AI or ML algorithms to advance the time series prediction? Because as far as, you know, I, I've, I haven't, you know, stepped into their territory yet, but based on the basic research that I had done, so uh, the qualitative reviews that I have found that the, even the ML and AI algorithms are not able to advance the accuracy of the statistical forecasting to a greater extent, it's like almost similar. So the straight question from the business leaders is that: Is there is the, is it worth investing time to advance this part if we are already you know like ninety percent there? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I would say if if you've built a forecasting model using some amount of data, right, and that forecasting model has spit out predictions and then or or forecasts whatever. And now you've seen the ground truth and you can assess the difference between what your forecast had projected and what the ground truth was, right? Now, if you were to use some more advanced type of technique, right? How does that compare over that same period of time against the statistical you know, model, the simpler model that you used, right? 
And if you mm-hmm. can de- if you can demonstrate that, okay, you know what? By using an LSTM model for time series, we were able to increase our, uh, you know, our accuracy on this baseline forecasting model that we had by thirty percent. Then great, translate that thirty percent increase in accuracy to dollars and cents, right? And then compare that dollars and cents to the amount of resources it would take in terms of time and effort to operationalize this, right? And if that amount is less than the, essentially the the savings, that means that you have a net positive, then yeah, go for it, right? That's kind of how I would reason through that. Hmm, right. Yep. Makes sense. Okay, cool. So next question up we got is, um, I got Josh next on the docket. Josh, go for it. And if anybody else has a question, feel free to just type in. I have a question into the chat. I'll add you to the line. Josh, go for it. Hey, I'm over here in uh, San Jose, California. I'm watching my one-year-old right now, which is why I'm on mute most of the time. (laughs) Nice. Well, right on, man. San Jose is awesome. I'm from Sacramento, born and raised in Sacramento. So, you know, we're, we're kind of neighbors ish. All right. Yeah. Um, so I have a question. I'm, I'm the only data scientist at my entire company. And, um, since I've been transferring from like a different field, I have a really bad case of imposter syndrome. And I just feel like, uh, that that's probably a problem in and of itself, but I always hear people talking about these different tools, um, I think you mentioned are in the ML ops space, uh, like Apache and the IBM business informatics, auto ML. I have no exposure to any of these tools and I don't even know the first place to go to learn about them if they're important to my business because there's nobody in my company I could talk to. Yeah, well, first of all, just addressing that imposter syndrome thing. And and then I'd love to hear Giovanna's take on the imposter syndrome after we address this issue with the tooling. Um, But dude, like I suffer from that stuff all the time. And then I realized that actually I have done difficult things for companies and made the money. So I'm not really an imposter. I've I've used my skills to help make money for my organization. But I don't think the tools necessarily make the data scientist, right? So right now you're, you're shouting out these tools, but I'm like, okay, like, you know, these are just names of, of companies that make things like if you distill it down to what it is that you're actually trying to do. Right. And then from there, based on what it is you're trying to do, look and see at your current organization, do they already have partnerships? Like for example, my company, Microsoft shop, right? Microsoft has first light right of refusal on anything. So if I do anything related to cloud stuff, then well, I've got to use Azure for that. Right. Um, so it wouldn't make sense for me to look at like AWS or GCP when in-house already, this is the the tool of choice, right? The, or the brand of choice. So first, just focus on at your actual company, what relationships do you guys have with the vendors? And then from those vendors, which tools that they have will help you solve your problem. So I think reasoning from a, from the perspective of what tools I need rather than the other end of it where it's like okay what do i need to solve this problem in terms of fundamentals understanding the problem um might be the wrong way to approach it i don't know if that's making sense um but i'd love to hear let's let's hear from iodeli about this and then um, we'll have you want to talk about the imposter syndrome part because i think that's super important 
Yes. So first of all, I'd say my heart goes out to you, Josh. I have been the only data scientist at, a, at an Oregon um, not having a team is incredibly difficult. It is really, really hard to do this in a vacuum. And similar to you, when you don't have, um, you know, decades of experience in stats and uh, IT per se, it can seem really, really daunting. Um, so the first thing I would recommend, um, I'm basically going to tell you all the things I would have told past Iadeli um, as the only data scientist. First is to get a mentor, um, someone who is like a team lead data science manager level, because you're going to be fighting through a lot of things that you don't know that you don't know. And um, those things kind of get revealed to you the larger the teams you work on. So um, when I was data scientist number one at a six person startup, there was no way I was even thinking or caring about ML ops. We didn't have um, a dev team. We didn't have like all of the things in place that really large scale and enterprise businesses do. Um, and I will warn that a lot of the technologies you hear um, are going to be for larger teams. So for um, mature data science organizations that have five to 10 plus people, they are starting to think about um, experiment management, or they're starting to think about um, cloud databases and their data lake, where you are probably not dealing with a lot of those issues yet. So I think um, knowing that it's kind of okay to maybe read about it on Medium, but it's probably not going to be as meaningful, as meaningful for you right, right now, um, should provide you with some assurance at least. Um, and then I would also say, first of all, being in groups like this is really helpful, um, especially pre-pandemic. The, the way I kind of found out about these problems was going to meetups and there would be someone talking about the issues their team was dealing with. I'm like, oh, I have that same problem and talking through X, Y, and Z what they did to fix it. So um, the, the biggest tip I have is to try to not do this in a vacuum um, because it is incredibly difficult to, to not have exposure to other data folks. And since you can't just bring on 10 people on the team um, trying to I see it almost as like making that chosen family, making that chosen group of people that um, are maybe in larger data science organizations um, that can give you insight onto the kinds of problems that they face. Absolutely love that. Actually, um, I think, Mark, you're the first data scientist in the organization as well. Right. Uh, so before we get to Giovanna on the imposter syndrome, let's hear from Mark on this topic. And trust me, like Josh, I've been there twice, been the first data scientist at an organization twice. It is not easy. And, and you know, I can definitely identify with the struggle you're going through. Uh, but yeah, Mark, go for it. Yeah. I'm, so I'm actually like the first labeled data scientist. There are other software engineers or my manager who just didn't have the title, who could easily done that, done data science projects. But uh, they finally want to like go towards that path and actually label people towards that. Um, but our team is very small uh, for that. And regarding imposter syndrome, I actually had a realization this week um, I've, I've been working on an NLP pipeline. It's been like one of the most ambitious uh, data science projects I've worked on so far in my career. And thankfully, I've been working with a lot of software engineers and get mentored by them. And through that mentorship, where I realized that they don't know anything <laughs> specific. Many times when I ask them, they're like, I, I don't know. But what they're really, really exceptional at is like problem solving. 
so they can be like, yeah, I don't know that language, but I know I solve problems. So like, I'll just figure it out. Or they just know how to essentially, with all the unknowns, make make the knowns come come to light and and connect the dots. So um, you don't have to know everything. What I've learned is like all my colleagues are like freaking previous Google engineers or Facebook engineers. There's they're really at the top, and they they always tell me I don't know, and that, that that's very comforting <laughs> in a way for that that component. And then kind of staying on top of like what you should know because. Um, I think uh, David Langer, he's the one that always says that uh, data science is a lifestyle. You know, you have to, you have to like uh, keep on learning all the time. Newsletters. Newsletters have been so helpful for me. I download this app called Stoop where all the newsletters go into this app. Um, and I basically stay up to date on things. So like the O'Reilly newsletter, um, uh, various ML things, just stay on top of the industry. They collect all the information, news articles for you. You can just get a really nice feed of like what you should stay on top of um, for yourself learning kind of outside the job. Absolutely love that. And I love the way you put that, just solving problems, right? So don't jump straight to the tools, jump to how do you solve this problem and how do you solve this problem just kind of from first principles, right? and really distill it down and then think about the tools later. Uh, thank you very much, Mark. So let's hear from Giovanna on this imposter syndrome, because I know you've, you've talked about this before and I, I think you got some great insight to share on this. Go for it. Thank you, Harpreet. Josh, the, the first thing um, that I want to share with you is this, stop comparing yourself with others <laughs> because everyone has a different uh, situation in in the position as a data scientist of, of any position so i think uh, because when you, when we have this uh, imposter syndrome it's like uh, we we always are trying to compared to someone that and um, we try to compare in a, in a sense that we believe that we need to be perfect experts and this is not uh, true because data science is a field that every day change <laughs> every day we have new information so anyone can know about everything so this is the first thing that you need to uh, to think about another another thing is that uh, see what you are achieving until now so, so far you have done a lot of things. That's why you are a data science in your company, in the place that you are working. So uh, we perceive ourselves, as we are not the, the, um, the professional that people think we are. But this is, this is uh, something strange because others think that we are doing a great job, uh, but we don't believe that. So one advice for you is talk with people that work with you and just a, like a friendly chat and ask them uh, what, why is important the contribution that you are doing with your work in the company. And do it at the beginning with people that is very close to you. And uh, this is like a... Um, medicine for this this kind of syndrome because you are going to realize that you are not um, focusing on your achievements you are focusing in the things that you are not able now to do 
because everyone wants to do everything uh, perfect and we are every uh, every day growing and know everything but go like baby steps so you have to understand everyone has to understand that we are in a learning process every day and focus on your achievements and then if you fail in something you have to think that is an opportunity to do it in another way and learn from the failure it's an opportunity to learn so in from the things that you have shared i can imagine that you are you add value to your company so focus on that and it's okay to try to to know about more tools but don't try to do it just in uh, like in one day to, uh, everything because it's not possible so focus on your achievements and learn from your failures because the failures are the the things that help us to grow so this is something that i would like to share with you uh, i think i absolutely needed to hear that if i could just share some personal with you guys i actually just um so I went through six grueling rounds for an interview, including the hacker Inc. and a take home challenge. And I got a rejection earlier this week. And that was a immense blow to the confidence. Right. And after getting that rejection, I'm like, fuck, man, am I cut out for this data science stuff? Like, is what, what am I doing? Right. That exact same day, I had my review with my boss talking about how amazing I've been doing all year. Right. So um, yeah, I don't know where I was heading with that. Just kind of sharing that story. And it just like what Giovanna was saying just really resonated with me. Um, you know, just that imposter syndrome does hit. Uh, but you, like you said, don't compare yourself to other people. Just focus on consistently creating value wherever it is that you are. And uh, it doesn't matter if a group of PhD data scientists did not let you into their club. It's all good. Uh, so let's, uh, we got three more questions that we're going to call it a day. We got Nishant, Jaya, and then, uh, Mark again. So let's go for Nishant. Hey guys. So I just graduated with my master's and currently I'm in my job hunting process. Uh, so if I'm interested in a company and I want to know more about their current projects and some of their business problems to, to help in my application process, uh, what sources I could use to find these? Um, I'm just hesitant to ask it directly to my connections who currently work there because I don't even know whether it's the right thing to do or ask them straight yeah. away. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I, to, to answer your question, like every single company has a section, uh, probably under the resources tab that says blog. Every company has, has a, a blog page on their website. And on that blog page, if you do a search for quote unquote uh, analytics or machine learning or innovation, you're going to find blog posts related to that topic, right? Um, that that company is is actively working on. So that's the first step. First step is go to that company's website, see if they have a blog, read through their blog, and then as you read through the blog, maybe there's one or two blogs that really resonated with you. Come up with a couple of insightful questions and then reach out to your connections. Like, dude, I was reading this blog on your company website. I thought that this topic was super fascinating. I've got just a couple of questions, if you wouldn't mind answering them for me, this and this. Great blog post. Looks like you guys are doing awesome work. Keep it up, right? So that's one thing you could do. 
Another thing is also, I think most companies have um, blog posts on like Medium. They might have their own Medium page. Um, so that's another option for you as well. Um, Ayodele, what do you think? I was just going to second everything you said. Um, other than, I'm not sure if you have, uh, you know, maybe your LinkedIn connections with someone uh, at the organ, you can do like an informational interview. So um, really that might be step two of uh, what Harpreet mentioned. So check out a cool blog page, um, are more interested in what kinds of, you know, similar data that you can find that's publicly available to play with. Um, I've always found that it's worked out to want to do like a, you could say it's an informational interview, but really trying to understand them better, understand some details of the project. If you can like connect with the person who um, actually posted on Medium or whoever rep is representing the company in uh, a specific blog or like YouTube video. But um, yeah, depending on the size of company, if it's a really, really large org, they might have um like Netflix has Netflix research. So they have their own like YouTube page with all of their specific um, AI ML related content, but um, smaller companies, I, I definitely check out their blog and um, some other online resources. Yeah. It's fascinating how like a lot of these companies, they openly share the work that they do in terms of white papers. Like you'll see Google research, you'll see Spotify research, Netflix research, Airbnb even. Um, and a lot of smaller companies as well, just, coming up with white papers that that they just describe their entire process. And I think that is absolutely amazing and a great opportunity for you to learn how real world data scientists actually go about their practice. Did anybody else have anything to add to this question? Nishant, was that helpful? Did that answer your question directly? Yes, it, does. it was very helpful. So I would just look into the blogs and white papers. Awesome. So next question up, we'll go Jaya, then Mark. And I see a question here in the chat, which I'm going to answer right now from uh, Ibitayo. Is it sensible to pay for an internship? No, do not pay for an internship. Uh, and I'm not going to discuss that question further after that. Uh, Jaya, go for it. Uh, yeah, I have a question. Um, I'm actually uh, struggling with linear algebra and I've taken classes in Khan Academy and I've done three blue, one brown uh, videos. Uh, they are kind of hard to understand. And if anybody has a suggestion of something much more uh, elementary or middle, middle, middle school type of uh, basic, basic, very easy way of learning algebra, because the one in Khan Academy and 3 blue one was too, too difficult for me. So I'm looking for something really, really basic. Yeah, I would say you don't even you don't even need to know everything about linear algebra mm -hmm, to even be mm -hmm. an effective practitioner with mm -hmm. data science and machine learning. Uh, in mm -hmm. terms of resource, the resource from Jason Brown Lee of Machine Learning Mastery, he has mm -hmm. a seven day crash course on linear algebra. And the thing about this, which I find really really helpful, uh -huh. is that not just linear algebra by hand, because who the hell does linear algebra by hand at work? Um, no, mm -hmm. you're doing it in in Python typically in NumPy using arrays. So he teaches you just the things that you need to know from linear algebra, mm -hmm. but in Python, right? So you're getting, right. you're getting that intersection of those two. And I mean, from linear algebra, like fundamentally, what is it that you actually need to know, right? You need to know, okay, what uh, what's a row vector? What's a column vector? What is a matrix? What is, how do you find the rank of a matrix? How do you, what is the inverse of a matrix? What's the transpose of a matrix? There's not much that you need to know, right? Um, how do you multiply mm -hmm. matrices? Maybe what's an eigenvalue? How do I do okay. a singular value decomposition? Mm -hmm. I mean, the, Apart from that, like, I, I don't really know what else you need to know uh, from linear algebra. Like, I, I mean, 
like column spaces. Like, I don't remember what a column space is off the top of my head. I mean, you know what I mean? Like uh, the there's, there's so much I, I, I don't remember from there because it just, okay. it doesn't bubble up in my day-to-day work. Okay. So you're saying linear JavaScript is not used as much in data science work because it's based on packages that you get and then it does the compute for you. Is that what it is? Yeah. I mean, you still need to understand, right? Let's mm-hmm. say you're fitting a linear regression and your error estimates for your linear regression are just blowing up towards infinity, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if you're not able to recognize that maybe your design matrix has some collinearity in it that is causing your design matrix to be uninvertible, which is why your error estimates for your coefficients are exploding off to infinity, then yeah, that's kind of hard to troubleshoot if you don't know that. Um, mm-hmm. So it definitely is useful for troubleshooting purposes when what you're trying isn't working. Um, but you don't need to know everything from it, right? Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right. I've got another question, but I think I want to save that for another time because we're running out of time. Yeah, no problem. Uh, anybody else have anything to add to that? Yeah, I would. Um, Jai, you might sound like me a little bit and that you like to go a little bit deep in these um, topics, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I've got a great book. Um, it's called Linear Algebra, The Easy Way. It's a... Um, it's last last name of the author is saying sorry it's like on my bookshelf over here um but it is a very like middle school kind of level here is how you actually do things in linear algebra from like very very beginning so um i found that helpful for me okay so it's called linear algebra the easy way is that what it's called let me i'm gonna grab it i'll drop it in the chat okay that's great thank you adela and another thing that is interesting, I'm going to share this with you. Uh, I think you guys will find this uh, pretty, pretty interesting. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a, so I'm, I'm all for making learning fun. And there's a uh, series of books that are essentially manga illustrated comics with like math related topics. So there's the manga guide to linear algebra. Uh, and they've also got the guide to calculus, statistics, regression analysis. So um definitely worth checking out if you are just like tired of looking looking at uh essentially greek symbols right so this might be something interesting to check out awesome thanks uh harpit i will say i've used those manga books um they've got a good one on linear algebra stats databases um a nice fun way to let, feel like it's less daunting <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> yeah the algebra i gotta find books. that one yeah, the algebra books that I'm seeing now, it's so boring. It's just like, I want to shut that book after five minutes. And, you know, it's just like, not me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, trust me. I feel your pain. I've taken like a few semesters of uh, linear algebra in in grad school. And those are, you know, traumatizing and scrubbed from my memory. Um, yeah. So, yeah, make it fun. I think this will be a great uh, way to do it. I got to look for that illustrated guide to databases. I think that'll be pretty interesting. So if you could share a link to that, I'd love to see that as well. So uh, next question we got up is going to be from um, from Mark. And then we'll call it a day because I don't see any other uh, questions in chat. Yeah. So uh, as I said earlier, one of my recent projects was building an NLP pipeline and I got uh, to work with scikit-learn a lot more, which is really fun, specifically the pipeline functions and creating custom transformers. And I absolutely love it. Um, I've, I've learned about it before, but actually putting it into production was a really fun way. And so my 
question is, you know, with that same workflow, are there any other tools outside of SK Learn for building up these pipelines of transformations and kind of getting this output you want? Um, it, it was really useful for both um, making it simple for others to understand what's happening, but also debugging as well. Uh, Kedro. Kedro is um, amazing. It's a Python package, Python library that essentially uh, makes it easy to create these really extensible pipelines and it has a uh, the, it's it's developed by quantum black which is a division of mckenzie um dude that thing has changed the way i work um tremendously it's it's i work in a much more uh, clear consistent manner since introducing that into my life um so definitely check out kedro uh, iodeli do you have any other suggestions as you say, um, I've used Pipe um, a little bit uh, in the past, another like little just Python package, but um, yeah, I would not like, I don't have a ton of extensive experience. <laughs> so uh, anybody else have any experience working with that? Yeah. So uh, I'm telling you, you got to check out Kedro. Kedro is amazing. Um, and it's nice because they've got a visualization package with it. So it's like Kedro Viz, you just run that. And you're able to see the entire pipeline, like how, how data is moving through and what nodes they're going to and what the output is. Um, definitely do, do some research into, into Kedro. Super easy to get up and running. Um, highly, highly recommend it. Cool. Um, I don't see any other questions. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about this question about paying for internships. Let's, let's close on this. So I don't think you need to pay for an internship, right? Um, because here's the thing, right? You, you don't need to work anywhere to get data science experience, right? Um, you don't need to be a data science to get data science experience, right? If you distill it down to what it is that a data scientist does is they solve problems using data, right? Now, the world has no shortage of problems that need solving. And you don't need someone to come to you and tell you that they have a problem needs, that needs solving or a question that needs answering. You can come up with one yourself, right? So you can think about something that is interesting to you, right? And from there, come up with an interesting question that you think can be solved using data. Obviously, the challenge here is finding data to help you answer that question. But if you think creatively enough, you can make it work, right? For example, you don't need data from a million different samples, a million different people from all over the world. You generate data every single day, right? If you are a wearable device, whether it's a watch or a ring, you generate data, right? You can access your data and combine your data with other data, right? So for example, let's say I was interested in understanding the effect that weather and music has on my activity levels, right? Well, I listen to Spotify every day. So Spotify has an API where I can pull my listening history. Weather data is very, very accessible through the Weather Channel API. And I've got access to my movement data, right? I can easily combine those different data pieces together and do an analysis to determine the effect that beats per minute that I listen to over a range of a, a week has on my activity levels, like things like that. I'm just riffing off the top of my dome right now. But the fundamental thing is you don't need a data science job to get data science experience. Um, I'd love to hear from, from my daily Mark Giovanna on this topic as well. 
Yeah, I think I would also agree. Um, right before you mentioned Harpreet, I was going to type in all caps, no, don't ever pay <laughs> to be an intern. Um, I say that especially because there are resources out there. Um, one really popular one is Turing Talent. So um, if you are looking for internship experience, looking for um, the opportunity to play with really large data sets or to create more models that are um, related to business needs, you can be an intern on Turing Talent and there's a couple options, but none of them require you to pay them. Some are unpaid internships, some are hourly paid internships, um, but none of them really require you to give to the company because since you are also um, using your intellect and your time. So um, I would suggest looking for other programs like that. The uh, other one I know of is called Acadium. Um, you are I think most of them, those internships are unpaid, um, but it is easier to get a paid internship on there as someone who has technical data experience. Um, it's geared a little bit more towards those with some more soft skills like in marketing, but um, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pay someone to be an intern. Mark, Giovanna, what do you guys think? Okay, I go. Uh, my suggestion is work on your portfolio as Harpreet had said, yeah, the important thing is to show what you are able to do. So how you use the tools, how you use the, the different models. So start building your portfolio and uh, it would be great if you choose a specific field because uh, this is uh, something that paid you back. Because if you have clear what is the field that you want to work in, uh, and and then you share your portfolio. It's easier that people can can because uh, uh, know about a business is key. So because okay, you can be a good data science, but if you don't know the business, it's like a, you have to learn from the scratch. So if they see that you have clear the business and then you are doing things, uh, applying all this uh, knowledge about data science, I think this is a great way of be, uh, that you can show that you are a data science. This is my advice. Awesome. Thank you very much, Giovanna. Mark, anything to add to this? Um, I feel like I really don't have anything <laughs> constructive to add to this. I'll stay quiet. <laughs> yeah, no worries, man. So yeah, in general, man, there, there's no need to, to pay to be an intern for somebody. Um, you can definitely create a portfolio project in such a way that you replicate the thought process and workflow habits of a professional data scientist. It's not hard to determine how to do that. It's just a matter of putting in time and research. Um, alternatively, you can come to Dedicated Conference this Thursday and hear me talk about why and how you can create a portfolio project that will get you hired. Um, so definitely tune in for that. Cool. Doesn't look like we have any more questions. Big shout out to Iodeli, Dominic, and Gideon, and everybody at Comet ML for helping us set up this office hours. Super excited that we've entered into this partnership. Couldn't think of a better way to spend my Sunday mid-mornings than this. Um, thanks, everybody, for coming. 
Uh, remember, you guys got one life on this planet, so why not try to do something big? Take care. Bye.